In 2015, my wife and I, we went on a family vacation with her side of the family. And we vacationed in Las Vegas, Nevada, because her sister and husband worked for a gospel preaching church out there. So we went and we saw the beautiful mountains, really beautiful. In fact, we ended up hiking, went on a hike, walked up one. I was out of my element because, you know, that ain't my thing. But it was a sweet time. And as beautiful of a sight as that part was, when you go downtown, it is a different story. It's a hypersexualized culture. And so you couldn't look down at the ground. You also couldn't take any cards from anyone. And down there you would see men, women, and children. Some of them seemed fascinated by the things that they saw. Others seemed to be numb to what they saw. Some were trying to avoid it, possibly. What's sad is just how normal things were. And as you know, Vegas is not only the place that's highly sexualized. In fact, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture to where we are constantly bombarded and inundated with sexual, implicit, and explicit material. It is pervasive. You can't avoid it. It is everywhere. And the culture is already showing their cards because they think that it is a good thing. Well, beloved, we don't take our cues from the culture, and so the question that we must ask is not what are culture's thoughts on this matter, but what are God's thoughts? We're to ask not how does the culture live, but how should we live according to God's word? Well, God has already made known in his word that it is evil. You read both Old and New Testament, you will come to that conclusion. And as his people, we are to conform not to the world, but according to his ways. As God has saved us by his grace and called us out of darkness into marvelous light. One of the things that we see in the scriptures is that relationship with God informs how we live before God. And that's especially in the area of sexual purity. And we will see that in this morning's passage. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, if you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against or take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. For God has not called us to impurity, 
but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Pursue holiness because God called you and commands this of you. Pursue holiness because God called you and commands this of you. The text gives us three actions that we are to do if we're going to pursue holiness as God called us to and commands of us. One, we are to encourage obedience. And part of encouraging obedience is that we exhort fleeing sexual sin. And we emphasize our calling. So we encourage obedience, we exhort fleeing sexual sin, and we emphasize our calling. So last time, we looked at chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, and we saw Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. He prayed for their sanctification, for them to progress in love and holiness. Well, this morning's passage is a turning point in the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first section of the letter, Paul reflected on his time with them and talked about how he was encouraged by them. Well, in the second section, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, we will see Paul exhort the congregation towards faithfulness to Christ Jesus. And the first exhortation we see is an exhortation towards sexual purity, which brings us to our first point, that we are to encourage obedience. As Paul previously prayed, here he begins to exhort them towards those very things. Look at verse 1. He says, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. Here, Paul, he emphasized and urged the Thessalonians to obey the apostolic teaching that he imparted to them. They believed the gospel that he preached they followed his example, and they heeded his instruction. The instruction here gets at this authoritative teaching. Now, Paul can teach with authority because he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He has been sent by the Lord Jesus. He speaks on behalf of Christ, and he speaks with the authority of Christ. And here he exhorted them to prioritize and to put to practice the teaching that he gave them. And here we see that the goal of teaching is not so that one could gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. It is not to show off what you know. Instead, it is to bring about obedience motivated by love. You see, our obedience is fruit of saving faith, and it should be out of a love for the Lord Jesus, the very one who loved us and gave himself up for us, 
Jesus would say in the upper room discourse that if you love me, you will obey my commands. Here we see that teaching is to inform living, which shows the importance of teaching God's word. And the very purpose of informing living is so that, look at the text, they may please God. Beloved, when you're in a relationship with someone, whether it's a girlfriend or a spouse or children or friends, when you're in a relationship with someone, you want to know what makes them smile, what makes them glad. You want to know what they don't like so that you can avoid those things and what they love so you can do more of those things to show your love for them. Well, here God has made known what makes him smile. It is not mysterious. Instead, it is revealed. And what makes the Lord smile is faith in the Lord Jesus and faithfulness to him out of a love for him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, now without faith it is impossible, impossible, impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Beloved, God has saved us by his grace. And now we are to, our lives are to have a Godward orientation. Think about the great command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Beloved, as his people, we're to be consumed with what pleases him. Not so that we may earn something from him, but because we've been loved greatly by him and saved by his grace. As we do this, we reflect the Lord Jesus. For in John chapter 8, verse 29, he says, I always do what pleases him, him being the Father. Earlier this week, as I was hanging out with some brothers and we were talking about the sermon text, it was Brother London Lester who gave this strong word. He said, pleasing God should be our compass. So we're constantly asking, does this please God? You may know this, but the reality is someone's pleasure will be our compass. The question is, whose pleasure is your compass? Who do you aim to please? The Apostle Paul, he's encouraged by the congregation. Look at verse 1. He says that as you've received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are already doing, do this even more. The Thessalonians, they please God by their obedience brought about by faith. Here Paul commended them for their faithfulness and obedience, and then he commanded them to continue in this. He exhorted them to abound and overflow in obedience to the Lord Jesus. This means that we are to not be complacent in our walk with the Lord. For no one, no one, no one has arrived. There's always more room for us to grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus. The very words of I don't need to grow in that area or I'm good in that area should not come out of Christians' mouths. Beloved, there's always an area of growth in Christ's likeness that we can grow in. 
As one person would say, complacency is the enemy of progress. Beloved, this is one of the reasons why I love the great athletes. Because they refuse to settle. They constantly seek to strive to grow in their craft. Think about Steph Curry and the LeBron Jameses in the world. In the offseason, them brothers are in the lab working on their craft, their strengths and their weaknesses. They're constantly trying to get better. And why? Because they love the game. Oh, beloved, how much more should we have that mentality in our sanctification? That we're seeking to grow more and more in the likeness of the Lord Jesus. That we want to be like him in our speech. That we want to be like him in our service. That we want to be like him in our love. Like him in our work. Reflecting him in our marriage and in our parenting. And why? Because we love Jesus. Paul wants them to abound in obedience. The question is, how does that happen? How does one abound in obedience? What is the foundation that that springs from? The answer is, the one who has your affections will have your devotion. Which means that we, in the words of John Piper, are to labor daily for Christ to be our supreme treasure. We are to constantly feed our souls with his word daily, meditating on the person and work of the Lord Jesus and slaying any type of desire that will compete against him for the throne of our hearts. And beloved, we are to encourage one another in this. As we do this, by God's grace, we will be abounding in obedience, motivated by love. And we also need one another in this. He's writing not to an individual, but to an entire congregation. And we're to encourage one another in. And so the question is, beloved, how are you doing in encouraging the saints towards obedience? The reality is our encouragement has a direction. It will either be towards Christ's likeness or to worldliness. How are you doing in helping your brothers and sisters obey the Lord Jesus? If we love one another according to what Scripture says love is, then we will encourage obedience to Christ. Amen? In verse 2, Paul goes on to remind them of the source of his authority. He says, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The authority that is behind his instruction is none other than the risen and reigning Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. The Son who became man, who died and resurrected, he is commissioned and commanded that Paul would speak to this congregation. The one who loves us and gave himself up for us is the same one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he commands us to obey him. In the words of one commentary, obedience is not optional, it is obligatory. And it is the proper response to the gospel of grace. That God loved us and gave himself for us, so with gratitude, we serve the Lord Jesus. We obey the Lord Jesus. 
And beloved, what Paul does here is instructive. This is exactly what we do in the pulpit. We're not preaching our words. We're preaching God's word. We're calling you, we're calling one another to obey the Lord Jesus. When you speak the truth in love to one another, when you give God's word to each other, that's exactly the goal. Not obedience to us, but obedience to King Jesus. We're exhorting one another to love, trust, and obey him. If we're going to encourage obedience, then we have to exhort fleeing sexual sin. This brings us to our second point. Exhort fleeing sexual sin. Look at verse 3. Paul says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. Beloved, if you write in your Bibles, I would encourage you to circle that verse or highlight it. I would encourage you to meditate on it and memorize the entire section, verses 3 to 8. For it is very important and extremely relevant. Store it up in your hearts, think about it, and encourage one another to obey it. Paul says, for this is God's will. Now, oftentimes, Christians, in conversation, they will ask the question, like, man, what is God's will for my life? And normally when they ask their question, they're referring to some sort of vocation as to what exactly should they do for work, a location as to where exactly should they live, or a relationship. You know, like, man, should I marry that person? The reality is, beloved, that the Word of God doesn't prescribe the exact answers to those questions. God is not going to tell you through his word who exactly you should marry or where exactly you should live or what exactly you should do for work. But his word does inform us on these decisions. His word does prescribe exactly how you should live. In this regard, God's will is 100% knowable. And so, beloved, may we give time and effort to learning and obeying what God has revealed and what he expects of us. And here, in this verse, Paul makes known that God's will is your sanctification, your holiness, a devotion to the Lord and a pursuit and a devotion of moral purity. And it's because he is holy. Not only is he holy, he's perfectly holy. In the throne room of God, found in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, the angelic beings are ceaselessly crying out to one another that God is holy, holy, holy. And this holy God has made us his covenant people and we are to be marked by holiness. God's will is our sanctification. We've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone by the grace of God. So we are declared righteous. We have this holy standing before him, pure and blameless through faith in Jesus. And justification leads to sanctification, which is the process where God conforms us more into the likeness of Christ. Our sanctification is to be progressive as we grow more and more in the image of Jesus. And here Paul is focusing on holiness in practice. He says, God's will is your sanctification that you 
keep away from sexual immorality. Here Paul makes known that an aspect of God's will, a dimension of God's will is sexual purity. And I want to be very clear. Paul is not saying that sex in and of itself is evil or bad. For it isn't. Sex was not Satan's idea, but God's. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God declares everything that he made is good, sex was included in that. And even the book Song of Solomon speaks to the beauty and goodness of marital intimacy. It is pleasurable. Proverbs says, take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Beloved, sex is good when it is done God's way. And the context by which it is to be enjoyed is between one man and one woman in covenant marriage union. And when Adam rebelled, all of creation was marred and that included sex. The Greek word for sex is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. And sexual immorality is any perversion of sex that goes outside the boundaries of physical intimacy between one man and one woman who are married. So that includes adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, to name a few. See, this command back then would have been countercultural to society just as it is in our day. Back then, in their culture, there was no actual real morality to sex. You can do what you want with who you want. It was normalized then just as it is now. Celebrate it. Back then, it would also be a part of their pagan rituals of worship. And in our day, it is so prevalent. In fact, it has infiltrated the schools to where there is teaching called sex education. Beloved, we live in a hypersexualized culture to where it's like the Dolby surround sound to where it is all around you. Found in movies and media, music, social media is easily accessible on your smartphones. Found on books and found in books and on billboards. We're constantly inundated with sexual material. And the reality is, beloved, if we're not careful, we can become desensitized to it, to where it no longer shocks us, to where we just watch it without thinking twice. Which leads us to, man, we need to examine ourselves to see if this is true of us. For we're commanded by God, to not conform to the passions of the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is the good, pleasing, and acceptable will of God. God makes known throughout his word. He repeatedly prohibits sexual immorality. Think about the Old Testament. He gives a command that you shall not commit adultery. Think about the New Testament. It is the first sin mentioned in Paul's list whenever he lists sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, 
Colossians chapter 3, it is always the first sin that Paul mentions. And here Paul commands us to flee sexual immorality, to not go near it. He commands to keep away from it. In our scripture reading, he commanded the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality. What this means is there he prohibits, God prohibits participation in this sin, which means that we should not dapple with it, entertain it, be entertained by it, play with it, or try to manage any type of sexual sin. Paul commands us to stay away from it. Let me address the children in our congregation. Kids, when you, normal times when you go outside or when you go on a walk with your family, as you walk through the neighborhood, you're likely going to see some sort of beware of a dog sign or keep out hanging on a fence. That sign is there for your protection. It is because your neighbor is trying to care for you. And if you were to trespass or if you were to cross the line and disobey that warning, you will get severely hurt. Friends, there's a way that your neighbor is trying to care for you and love you. Well, God is a loving God. And in his word, he has keep away signs from certain actions. He is doing this because he loves you and cares for you. So if you can believe your neighbor is trying to care for you by that beware of dog sign, by that keep out sign, how much more should you believe God? Because he's a loving God. He's telling you this for your good. And so as you read the Bible, as you ask your parents, ask your parents about God's keep away signs. And not only ask him, but obey him. For he is a loving and good God. And his keep away signs is him being good to you. Paul commands us to keep away from sexual immorality. Beloved, how are you doing in keeping away from sexual immorality? The reality is we're always doing one of three things. We're either fleeing from it, flirting with it, or flocking to it. Which one are you doing? The Lord has made known that he is pleased when we flee from it. This command should impact what we do and don't do. It should impact where we go and don't go. What we watch and don't watch, what we read and don't read. The fact that the command is to keep away from sexual immorality should lead Christians to never ask the question, how far is too far? Or how close can I get? That is the very opposite of keeping away from sexual immorality. And beloved, the one who asks that question is the same one who is planning to sin sexually. God commands us to keep away from it. It shouldn't even be named among us as God's people. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says, but sexual immorality should not even be heard among you as is proper 
for saints. This command is countercultural. It's relevant back then as it is today because the Thessalonians, their city was a sexualized culture just like ours. And just like some of us, God, by his grace, called them out of that lifestyle. Save them from sexual sin by the grace of God. Think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. How it was reported how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Just like us, he has saved us from this. Open our eyes to see and behold and know that Jesus Christ is better. That what he gives is infinitely better and more joyful and satisfying. Beloved, sexual immorality, the forbidden pleasure that comes from it is a cheap and and destructive counterfeit. My bad, let me say that again. Beloved, the forbidden pleasure from sexual immorality It is a cheap and destructive counterfeit in comparison to the true and satisfying pleasure that is found in Jesus. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. This is one of my scripture memory verses. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, I say these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Beloved, God wants us to know and experience joy and lasting pleasure. He knows and declares that it is only found in Jesus Christ and in doing things God's way. Beloved, he commands us to flee sexual immorality. And we can do this by God's grace because we've been delivered from sin's dominion through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul gets at that in the next two verses. He says that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Beloved, we have been freed from sin's dominion. As Colossians would say, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And because we've been saved by grace and sealed with his spirit, we are to know how to control our bodies. The reality is we live in this body of flesh, Sin remains in us, and yet because of the gospel of Christ, it does not reign over us. By God's grace, we don't have to give in to sin. We can say no to sexual sin when it comes. And the reality is, it will come. Temptation is sure to come. Now, I want to be clear, temptation to sin is not sin in and of itself. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was tempted by Satan. Hebrews would say that it's because he himself has endured temptation and resisted that he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so, beloved, we have a real help in the midst of being tempted towards any type of sin, and that includes sexual sin. 
And also we have a faithful God who helps us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with that temptation, he also provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Beloved, Christ has purchased us with his very own blood. And it's because of that that we can honor him in our bodies out of a love for him, both in public and in private. Beloved, union with Christ impacts how we live. Paul makes it clear there is to be a clear contrast between how Christians live and how non-Christians live. Look at the verse. Verse 5, he says, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Now, some of you who have read this verse may have some questions going off in your head. What do you mean, not like the Gentiles? This congregation is predominantly consists of Gentiles. So what are you getting at, Paul? If you're wondering that. I wanted the same thing as I was studying. Well, let's get in the lab and let's bring this to our level. And so, yes, the congregation predominantly consists of Gentiles. They were Gentile by ethnicity, but they weren't Gentiles spiritually. They were the Israel of God through faith in Jesus. They had union with Christ, who is the true Israel, and so that is who they are, the Israel of God. So what does that mean? Well, that means outwardly we look the same as our kinsmen according to the flesh. But inwardly we are different from our kinsmen according to the flesh. God has removed the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He has written his law on our hearts. And so therefore we are to live differently by the grace of God. Unbelievers, whether they look like us or not, sadly, they are still enslaved to their sin. They are dominated by lustful passions. Paul will say it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, talking about Gentiles, unbelievers. He says they are excluded from the life of God. They have hard hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity. For the practice of every kind of impurity with the desire for more and more. And so, beloved, we should not be surprised when unbelievers promote all kinds of sexual sin. It should grieve us. It should cause us to have compassion upon them. It should cause us to pray for them. It should humble us. Because that's the very same lifestyle that the Lord has saved some of us from. And it should also cause us to evangelize, pointing them to the, the Savior who sets people free, offering them the life and joy that Jesus can give and only Jesus gives. Beloved, Paul is saying that we know God by God's grace. We have a saving relationship with him through Jesus Christ. 
and he's declaring that knowing God is transformative. Knowing God is transformative. Beloved, we are saved by God's grace, the unmerited favor of God. And grace doesn't excuse us from obedience. Grace covers it when we disobey, and grace also enables us towards obedience. It doesn't excuse us from it. It enables us towards it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny, godliness, to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Grace enables us to obey God. Beloved, Paul is getting at the reality that holiness, it is an individual responsibility, an individual requirement, and it is a community project. Here he says that each one of you are to know how to control his own body. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, it gets at the individual requirement and the communal aspect. Paul says, flee youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, love, and peace, and faith. That's the the individual aspect. And he says, you don't do this alone, but you do this along with everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Beloved, holiness is a community project. Which means that we're to be intentional in encouraging one another to pursue holiness. Which means that, brother, brother or sister, if you are tempted, my encouragement would be that you reach out to a brother or sister in the midst of your temptation. Don't try to handle it by yourself. Instead, humble yourself and text 911, I'm in need of help. And beloved, if you receive that message, pray, call them, encourage them. If you have opportunity, hey, come to the house. Get out of the house. Leave whatever you're doing right now all for the sake of their souls to help them love Jesus. And beloved, this means that if a brother or sister sins in this way and they bring it to you, it gives us instruction on how we are to respond. One, I would tell us to first thank them for their confession. It is a humble thing to confess. Second, I would encourage you to reaffirm your love for them, and more importantly, reaffirm God's love for them in Christ Jesus. Remind them of the gospel, that it is a gospel of grace, and call them to repent of that sin, to turn away from it. That includes asking, like, hey, what led to this? How did you access this? which includes conversations about cutting off provisions of the flesh, which means that we shouldn't have off the table canceling some sort of subscription, whether it's to Netflix or Disney Plus or wherever you may see it. It includes the possibility of getting a dumb phone, doing away with the iPhone or a smartphone. If you live by yourself, it includes talking about the possibility of getting a roommate or covenant and covenant eyes. But we're to encourage one another to abide in the word and abide in prayer. 
while reminding each other of the redemption that we have in Jesus. May we be a people who do this. As our church covenant said, that we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. Encourage one another and admonish each other when occasion may require. Well, Paul goes on. He shoots him straight in verse 6. In case the congregation wasn't picking up what he was putting down, he spells it out clearly for them. He says, this means one must not transgress against or take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. Paul makes clear that sexual sin is crossing a line that God has clearly defined and drawn. The world would say that you show your love by the person you love by sleeping with them. Well, the word would say that that is not love at all. Instead, that is sin. And it's against God, it's against your own body, and it is against them. Beloved, we want to actually show love We show love by helping each other in holiness. Because love and holiness, it goes together. The very God who is love is the same God who is holy. Now, based upon verse 6, one may assume that this excludes pornography because it's not directly harming a specific person which I would say it doesn't exclude pornography. The very purpose of pornography is to provoke arousal. It objectifies image bearers. It finds pleasure in wickedness. And it supports a wicked industry. The very Lord Jesus spoke to this matter when he says in Matthew chapter 5, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Job 31.1 would say, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I look at a virgin or at a woman lustfully? Here Paul is saying that sexual sin, to sin sexually against a brother or sister, it arouses the Lord's anger and it sets one up against a holy and righteous God. Some of you here, you may have been violated sexually, victims of some sort of abuse. And I want you to know that the Lord saw it. And his anger is aroused. The scripture says that he is an avenger, which means he will not clear the guilty. He will discipline his children in this life who does this. And he will punish his enemies in this life and condemn them eternally in the life to come. You can take comfort in knowing that the Lord, will he saw it and he will judge. Beloved, this exhortation should sober and humble all of us. Because as Scott mentioned before the prayer of confession, we're all sexually broken to some degree. Whether thoughts or words or deeds, 
And if you ain't guilty of any of that, you're likely guilty of self-righteousness in this area. And this leads us to praise God for the good news of the gospel. That we're not saved by our works. That God in his love sent his son to become man. Who is our representative and our savior. As he perfectly obeyed. And on the cross, he suffered vicariously as a substitute for our sin. To all whose faith are in Jesus, God's holy and righteous indignation for sin was poured out upon him. Jesus shed his blood for all of our sexual immorality and impurity. Some of you who hear this message, you're reminded of your former life possibly feeling guilty for your former sins. And beloved, I can relate. I want to remind you of the sweetness of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That those sins that we have committed have been atoned for. And not only that, but we are new creations in Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The old has passed away. God has forgiven us of those sins. He has separated them as far as the east is from the west. Beloved others of you, you may be convicted because you recently may have been ensnared or you committed this sin recently. To which I would encourage you to not wallow in your guilt. I would say, man, that godly grief that you're possibly experiencing, praise God for that. It is God's kindness towards you to bring conviction upon you. I would say, man, let that be the catalyst that leads you to turn away from that sin. Confess it to God, for 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is true, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 2 in that same book says, I write to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. His death is the atoning sacrifice. So I would encourage you to confess it to God. I will also encourage you to confess it to a fellow brother or sister. James 5, 16, pray for, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Beloved, if you've been ensnared in this, I want you to know that there is hope found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' blood is so efficient and so effectual that it really does liberate us. I would say that may we draw near to him. May we be honest and may we cling to his gospel. Even as we sung, be tethered to the cross. If you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. As you see, as Christians, we don't have it all together. We are sinners who've been saved by God's grace. It is Jesus alone who has it all together, and it is Jesus alone who makes us whole. Friends, I would implore you this very day to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus.
For as Christians, our sins are forgiven, but yours are not. He is your avenger. But if you repent, he will be your advocate. So I would encourage you to turn from your sin and trust in the gospel. You can talk with any of our members after service. We love having these conversations. Beloved, may we be a people who exhort one another to flee sexual sin. And as we exhort one another in this, may we emphasize our calling. Look at verses 7 and 8. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul grounds these exhortations in the calling of God. The effectual call of God unto our salvation. It is this God, chapter 2, verse 12, who called us into his own kingdom and glory. This effectual call of God has ethical and moral implications. It is to have a holy aim to where we live holy as he is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 will say it this way, But as the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Paul here is making known that there is an incompatible relationship between sanctification and sin. And that includes sexual sin. Which means that we should not make peace with any type of sin. We should not be content with any type of sin. And that includes sexual sin. Beloved, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, called to live in holiness, and that is what we are to pursue. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, For without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Here, Paul, he tells us to pursue holiness because God has called us to it. God has called us to holiness, and then he commands us to be holy. Here we see that the indicative precedes the imperative. The indicative, God has called you to be holy. The imperative, be holy. Beloved, in our exhortations, may we follow that pattern. Emphasizing our identity as God's chosen ones, as God's holy ones, as God's beloved ones. And from that identity, may we exhort one another towards obedience. Motivated by love. Beloved, it is as we live in holiness, we have an opportunity to shine brightly before a dark and perverse world. We get to display the power of the gospel, the beauty and goodness of God's holiness. We are to do this by God's grace as we unashamedly live in holiness. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Once again, this command, it is not from Paul. It is from God. The command comes with divine authority. That to reject this is to disobey God himself. And here Paul speaks to the foolishness 
of disobedience and that it is inexcusable. Because through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has made obedience possible. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Beloved, one of the things I love about the new covenant, one of the many things, as you think about it, there are very precious promises in the new covenant. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a new heart. We have his law written on our hearts. We have a new spirit. And we have his Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statues and carefully observe my ordinances. Beloved, we believe in Jesus. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. God has done everything possible to enable our obedience by his grace. The blood of Christ liberates us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and causes us to obey it is as we live by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. It is as we walk by the Spirit that we will flee sexual immorality. The very Scriptures is the sword of the Spirit that God uses to sanctify us more and to conform it to the likeness of Jesus. Beloved, our God is our Holy Father. He has loved us and called us. He has delivered us and sealed us. And this loving God commands us to pursue holiness. Beloved, our obedience will be imperfect. And at the same time, it is possible because God has graciously saved us. There's real joy and pleasure found in obeying Jesus. I've never met a Christian who said, I wish I didn't do things God's way. But I can attest to myself saying that I wish I did do things God's way. Beloved, may we pursue holiness as God called us to and commanded us to do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you are a gracious God. That you forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us. That you will not reject us. Constantly calling us. Father, when we go astray, your son, the chief shepherd,